Steve Jackson Games for Nordcast, episode 10, August 21st, 2007. The Fenordcast has finally broken double digits. Here's episode 10. This one's jam-packed with Origins interviews that Paul brought back. We'll listen to a few short ones, take a non-Origins break with an Ask Dr. Crom segment, and then wrap up the episode with our second annual Ken Heights Opinion of Origins interview. First off is Luke Crane. All right, we're here with Luke Crane, who last night walked away with the Antipope, the, the Origins Award, the for Best RPG 2006. That's right, and your game is called Burning Empires. Burning Empires, indeed. So it's an RPG, and it's got a really cool-looking cover uh, and an unusual format. Tell us a little bit about it. So, well, Burning Empires is uh, is a licensed game. Uh, I licensed uh, the the setting from a comic book author known as Chris Moeller. The comics were called The Iron Empires. Uh, they're published by Dark Horse. Uh, I've been a fan since they came out in 94 or whatever. Uh, yeah, I love these comics, and I, we wanted to kind of do an experiment and see if we could make a game that gave you the end, same end result as these comics, where they're very melodramatic, heroic struggles for the fate of the world. And the fate of the world is tied up in all these twisted interpersonal relationships. You know, when you're, what do you do when your beloved mentor betrays you? You know, that kind of stuff. Love that stuff in our game. So we wanted to say, like, can we design a game where you get that every time? Or, in fact, that you have to have that. Um, where it's not like it happens. It's like, you know, all right, this dude's going to betray me, and he's going to pay. <laughs> you know, awesome. uh, that was our launching point for the game. And, and so what we ended up with is a you know, like kind of sci-fi space opera uh, role-playing game. You know, traditional, like, we play our characters, we talk in funny voices, uh, with a strategic game tied to it, uh, you know, kind of bolted on top of it, where your session play uh, interacts with the fate of the world. At the, at the end of the session, you uh, make a role to determine and how your actions have affected the big picture, and then and you can do like really like kind of oddball, out of left field, big picture stuff. You can you can you know if you win the role, you can like bring in stuff like climate change or weather. Like you can bring in really big this, the planetary stuff. Like a, a new party is elected. You know, there's food riots. Like you can bring in the really really big picture stuff that's kind of acting as the backdrop for the you know the, the melodramatic struggle between the the characters, between the lead characters. So the characters are handed a little bit of. Uh, the world creation duties as well as their normal run around and kill things to take their stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the players, uh, well, one, the group as a whole makes the world. There's a mechanic to make the world and, and each choice that you make has strategic value. Uh, you know, in, in addition to having obviously more important color value, like, you know, what's our world like and, you know, does it have an atmosphere? Is it a, you know, is it a lifeless rock? Like all those cool, like, space sci-fi questions about your world. Um, then once that's in place, the group, uh, like, you know, the group's deciding on that stuff the players in the GM then fight to change it. So it's not just one player doesn't have complete say over and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. The players, you know, have to be clever and use strategy to get uh, you know what they want uh, across. Uh, you, you, you have complete control of your characters, and and you know you're you're you know in the moment to moment struggle. It's you know you're very present. It's very immersive. Like, you know it's it's hair raising because the stakes are really high. Uh, but then when it comes to the strategic game, right? You're 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 fighting for narrative control. Awesome. Okay, let's uh, 
step back from the gameplay for a second. Let's talk a little bit about the book itself. It's not your normal eight and a half by eleven big floppy book. It's uh, a smaller size. It's hardcover and it's thick as hell. Tell us a little bit about why you chose that format. Well, that's kind of our format. Uh, back in 2002, there were only a handful of games that were in the digest size format. Uh, there had been in the past, but at that point, for uh, most people were publishing in you know in the eight and a half by eleven. There was uh, like uh, Universalis, Dust Devils, and Inspectors, and Octane were the, like a lot of really small titles that were had published in digest format. Uh, and we published Burning Wheel initially in five and a half by eight and a half format, just because we wanted it to be different. We wanted it to say, when you look at it, this is not the same thing as that thing next to it, because it's not. I felt like it would be kind of false advertising if I put a big hard cover with a uh, gl- you know glossy colored cover and the whole deal, like because once you open the book up, it's like the Burning Wheel mechanics because they're so player driven. They're I mean they they have the same trappings and they have the kind of same starting point, but once you get into play, it's very different. Uh, which is cool, but so I, I mean, I wanted to physically identify it as different, uh, and so when it came time to do this this hardcover, we were like, well, I mean, we have all this beautiful art, like the art, like the originals for the art, was huge, like you know, seven, uh, eleven by seventeen uh, Bristol board panels, and you know, the, like full pages uh, that Chris would send us scans of, and we're like. We're dying. We're drooling over these. We're like, we want these to be. Yeah. We want to do an 11 by 17 book. Uh, so, but Chris was like, you you want to do it in the Burning Wheel format? Chris Muller, the comic author, suggested it here. I mean, I think it would be best. Like, it would you know, it would tie it to all the other books uh, that we published, and and it would be different. You know, and so we, we gave it a shot. It, it like, like I was, my eyes were bugging out of my head as I saw the page count ballooning because <laughs> I mean, there's actually there's not a lot of words per page. There's 250 to 300 words per page in the book, right? Because it's a single column, uh, you know, decent sized type, nice letting in there, and there's tons. There's a there's an illustration on every spread. Awesome. Um, so there's not a lot of words, but with all the art and graphics and all that stuff, right? Balloons and so right, it becomes this brick. It's this you know that's what they call it. Uh, around the house they call it the brick so it's kind of intimidating and I see players pick it up and it has pretty much the opposite effect of what we had hoped for where they pick it up and they're like this is scary and they put it back down they're like no no it's just it's small and tough it's a dwarf <laughs> yeah so you know you win some you lose some excellent now you're uh, distributed through Indie Press Revolutions correct? Uh, we are uh, Burning Empire is fulfilled through T20 T20 okay T20 uh, and we are in national and international distribution. We're in Alliance, SDV, Yulsha Steel, all that stuff. So uh, those of our listeners who may not have seen your book on the shelves yet should go into their friendly local game store and request it. Please do. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much, sir. Thank you. All right. We're here with Joe Unger with Pinnacle Entertainment. What's your official title and what do you do? Um, I'm the marketing director for Pinnacle Entertainment. As the forums like to call me the Minister of Information. <laughs> uh, basically, I'm the guy that posts everything on the web and tries to keep the information flowing and make sure what Simon and Shane do back in the home office is communicated to all the fans out there and make sure that the fans are heard back in the office as well. So. Excellent. And last night? You guys got one of those nifty little statues. So, which category did you pick it up in? We were voted uh, best role-playing game supplement of the year. 
Excellent. And that was for Deadlands Reloaded? Indeed. Uh, that's the updated Savage Worlds edition of Deadlands Reloaded, which also brings the world up to 1879. Wow, so you're advancing the metaplot, too. Yeah. Nifty. Yep, the war between the states has come to a standstill, and everything else is firing up. So. Cool. How have the fans reacted to um, bringing it over to Savage Worlds? I know uh, Deadlands has gone through a whole bunch of different systems, including GURPS. So uh, everyone's happy with uh, Savage Worlds then? Yeah, Savage Worlds has been doing really well for us and uh, been very well received as a system. Uh, I mean, it won an Origins Award itself. And uh, so having Deadlands adapted to it is really something that more unifies Pinnacle as a company and uh, reestablishes Deadlands as our flagship. Uh, we're planning some more books in the future, and there's even a 32-page adventure that's coming down the pipeline real soon. Well, thank you very much, sir. All right. We're here at Origins with Jeff Tibble, who just last night won the Vanguard Award for... For uh, Pieces of Eight, the Pirate Ship Coin Game. Yay, me! Yay, Jeff! So... Pieces of eight. Give us the, uh, the the quickie blurb. This is a really hard one to do audio only, but uh, imagine a stack of coins. Each one of the coins is something that you might find on a pirate ship. So a captain, a mate, a cutlass, a cannon. You stack your coins up, you choose 13, order them in any way you want, so it's customizable but not collectible. Uh, and then as your coins come to the front or back of your stack, which is the fore or the aft of your ship, uh, you can use their abilities to try to, uh, to kill off your opponents. Excellent. And i got to say, when you have these things in your hand, it has a nice heft. It feels like a cool-ass game because it's, it's the cool metal on your skin. Right. It's awesome. So the reason you got the Vanguard Award is this, this is definitely out-of-the-box sort of game design. Where did you get the idea? I was working for a mobile phone company, and my office mate uh, came back from Six Flags. I was living in L.A. at the time. She came back from Six Flags one Monday and told me about some people she had seen in life for a roller coaster who were playing a uh, card game, but they were holding all the cards. They were passing them around. Uh, and I didn't know what that game was. She was not able to tell me really anything more about it. But I thought that that was a cool idea. There should be a game that you can play while you're standing in a line. Uh, so I started thinking about it as a card game, but the idea pretty quickly evolved into poker chips because anytime you walk past a poker table in Vegas, you see everybody there who's not in the game anymore is just dinking around with their chips constantly. So it became poker chips and then pirate coins were sort of the obvious theme to put that with and it turned out that the the coins and the chips were of semi-equal expense and the coins were obviously the better way to go for it for the sort of tactile feel that you were talking about it's a good choice i'm glad you went with it and this is uh, pieces of eight and uh published through atlas games uh so what are you up to now what um, I'm working for Fantasy Flight Games now. The last couple of projects that I've been working on uh, are an adaptation of Kingdoms to be used as a Beowulf board game. The tie-in for the movie that's coming up is a Mechas CG a Beowulf movie. I understand there will be a bunch of press stuff announced about that at the San Diego Comic-Con, but they're keeping it largely under wraps. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of the actual... CG pictures yet, but I don't think they've made any of that stuff available publicly. So I, I worked on that, and then I've been working on shepherding a couple of uh, foreign 
partnership project that Fantasy Flight has been working on. Tannhauser is coming out, I think, at Gen Con, uh, and a, a two-player Cold War card game called Cold War CIA versus KGB. It's actually a lot of fun. It's a, a two-player game, card game, which is pretty unusual. It has a little bit of the collectible feel, but it is absolutely not collectible. So uh, people should check those out. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jeff. Um, thanks for talking to the Fnordcast, and uh, we look forward to seeing more stuff from you. Oh, thank you. That's been awesome. The Archdean assassinates the dehydrated user's manual in the user-friendly treasure chest. This episode's Ask Dr. Crom question comes from our old friend, Reverend P. Kitty. He asks, GURP seems to attract many hardcore realism simulists far more so proportionally than other mainstream systems. Why do you think this is? And, as a developer, how much of a line do you have to walk between keeping the simulationists happy while also trying to appeal to the storytellers? Well, the reason why is probably because very early in Group's inception, um, Steve Outnet stated that real, realism and making reality check, while it wouldn't dominate thinking of the game's design, the game's philosophy, whatever you want to call it, would be an important factor. And a lot of people took him at face value and said, okay, if that's the way you want to do things, that's great, then I'm going to play your game and the understanding you're going to give me realistic results. And for a lot of people, the gap between realistic and a simulation of reality is, is nil. Now, I personally think that there is a difference there. Simulating reality is a complicated physics and biology and sociology problem. It's quite uh, I would say it's probably quite beyond a game to solve. Whereas uh, merely giving r- results that are believably realistic, as long as you're willing to not look too closely at the fine details and you're willing to round off some corners and not stare directly in the eye of, of the beast and so forth, that, that's, that's, that's attainable for a game and probably reasonable for a game. And that's probably what Steve meant. But there are people who, who disagree. Or at least it's a spectrum and they think the game sits closer to the pure simulation end of the spectrum than to the merely getting a good enough end of the spectrum. Uh, so that explains why. Now, does GURPS favor one approach over the other? Well, I've implicitly stated my biases already, so I can say truthfully that GURPS 4th edition, which I was pivotal in designing, and GURPS 3rd edition, which I greatly influenced later in its life, probably favor getting things good enough and reasonably realistic over getting things perfect and simulating reality because I don't think the latter is a really attainable goal for a game as I've said um, earlier groups pretty much took the same approach I suspect I got my thinking from writers and designers who did the earlier books do we try to shut out one group or the other no we don't um, we do try to get fine details. I'm in the process of editing the high-tech book right now. And in that high-tech book, we have specific makes and models of firearms that differ by mere ounces and yards of range. We've got different kinds of ammunition whose exact effects are so slightly different that I'd almost be tempted to throw them together. But I resist the urge because I know there are realist fans and, and simulationist fans out there who, who want this level of distinction. But do we let this go to the level where it dominates the game and makes it unplayable for those who just want it to be good enough? No, we don't do that either. There are plenty of places in groups where we say, this is just the way it is. This is a blanket rule. It covers all the possible situations. You can give specific detailed descriptions to them, but we're not going to do it for you. Or if we are going to do it, it's going to be in a box somewhere where it's marked clearly optional. And we try to put enough of the detailed content in that 
fans buying the books for the facts or to simulate reality in their World War II gritty in the you know in the face of the machine guns and bombs campaign won't be disillusioned. But at the same time, we try to make it so it plays more quickly enough that people who want to do their high-flying kung fu campaign aren't going to find themselves shot down by cold, hard facts or a long diatribe on exactly which kung fu move you must use in this one situation to get things right. And that's, and that's the approach we take. Uh, whether we succeed or not is up to our customers to decide, but overall the reviews are pretty good, I've found. Thanks, Krom. Post any questions you might like the doctor to answer to our Ask Dr. Crom thread in the Fenordcast section on the SJ Games forums. Squad 23 meets with the mason jar. We are here with Ken Hyde in the second annual Origins interview. Ken, you were our, actually the Fenordcast's first guest last year at Origins when we interviewed you about the comings and goings at Origins uh, when you had just received an award for Infinite Worlds. You weren't up for anything this year, but nevertheless you were here and you were poking around. What did you think of Origins this year? First of all, I suppose I was up glancingly because RuneQuest New Edition by Mongoose was nominated and I have a development credit in that. Uh And Game Quarterly Magazine, the late lamented by Matthew Simmons Marketing, was up for non-fiction publication, and I had a mostly regular column in that, a phenomenally familiar to my pyramid readers. <laughs> uh, and neither of them won, so sadly my resume must remain bare of two more entirely fictive Origins Awards, since the credit for those would have gone legitimately to entirely other people, but that's why you have resumes, is so you can make the best possible version of your life <laughs> for future archaeologists to find. But that said, the great news out of the Origins Awards was the stunning success of Burning Empires as best new role-playing game of 2006, which was an absolutely deserved award. It was clearly the class of the field. The only possible competitor was Patrick Sweeney's excellent game, Fairy's Tale. Uh, The other games, while fine games in their right, did not bring it, and I include the game that I helped develop. It was an excellent iteration of the RuneQuest system, but Burning Empires is head and shoulders above that for what it's intended to do. It's a masterful piece of mega storytelling, science fiction, hardcore action, alien invasion, conspiracy storytelling, and deserved every single possible plaudit that it could get. Uh, I gave it the best uh, licensed thing award because it's based on Iron Empires, the comic book. But it certainly was a tremendous role playing achievement, and I'm delighted that Luke Crane won um, uh, best uh, RPG for it. I was also glad to see Pendragon get into the Hall of Fame, and I was glad to see Jonathan Tweet get uh, into the Hall of Fame. I was also glad to see Alan Moon get in the Hall of Fame, but I love role playing games, and I don't play a lot of train games, so there you go. I mean, Jonathan Tweet. A co-creator of Ars Magica, co-creator of Everway, co-creator of D&D 3.5, co-creator of Over the Edge. I mean, the guy's written two or three of the best six or seven role-playing games ever. I mean, he's the frickin' Michael Jordan of role-playing game design. And to see him get that award, he wasn't there to receive it, but to know that he's in the Hall of Fame was pretty darn satisfying as someone who, you know, has followed his career literally from the inception, from playing... Ars Magica first edition, so that was pretty freaking awesome. So, Burning Empires, uh, one of the high points. Any other products that you saw that you said, this is worth money? 
Well, I mean, the thing about a role-playing game, and I'm going to leave it at mostly role-playing games because I don't play enough of the other games to really have a good, broad perspective. The thing about a role-playing game is a game that does what you want it to do is worth money. You look at a game like uh, Aces and Eights, which finally came out from Kenzer, which is basically a Western version of Hackmaster. It's a detailed, old-school, points-and-bonuses role-playing game set in the West, no magic, lots of shooting each other. It has an awesome targeting reticule like Millennium's End did. There's one for scatter guns that will chart every individual pellet if you wanted to. I mean, this is that kind of game. And if you want to play that kind of game, Aces and Eights is a gorgeous example of it. It's beautifully bound. It's beautifully laid out. It looks nice. It's probably playtested fairly well, because it's been three and a half years in development or whatever the hell it is. I think that... Um, uh, I think that's a great game to spend money on if what you want to play is Dungeons and Dragons in the Old West with guns and no magic. I mean, that's a great game for that, and I would play that in a heartbeat if that's the game I wanted to play. Similarly, and on the entirely other axis of the spectrum, I played a demo of a game called Carry, uh, which was at the Independent Press Revolutions booth, the IPR, one of the indie games, as the kids call them, which is a game about Vietnam, and you're playing squatties in a Vietnam uh, unit uh, on duty, and this game is about how you respond in a crisis. And it has scene control and bidding for outcomes, and you move dice around depending on how you react. If you're uh, a warrior and you react violently, you have a bigger die. If you're a schemer and you react subversively, you have a bigger die. And then you give those dice to the next player and force the warrior to react subversively and the schemer to act violently. So that the story keeps churning itself on this sort of mechanical basis while against this Vietnam War backdrop. It's a tremendously powerful potential. It's an interesting looking game. I haven't read the whole thing any more than I have Aces and Aids, but if what you want to play is sort of a personal exploration of changing conditions and constant pressure in the Vietnam War on a more psychological basis than a how many bullets of my M16 hit basis, then Carry is a terrific game to spend your money on, right? I mean, they're both at the show. They're both good uh, for what they want to do. The, the number of really terrible role-playing games is not as big as people assume. There is a number of merely adequate role-playing games, which is almost as big a crime, because it's not like the market is large enough to support the merely adequate role-playing game. What you really want is a game that does something, anything, well. And if it does something that you never want to play well, well, that's fine, but... If, you, if it does something that you absolutely want to play well, you should be just as glad that your little niche has been catered to. There was a big buzz at the show for Witch Hunter, which is a game from uh, Paradigm Concepts, the guys who do Living Arcanus, which is set in an alternate North America where Saul and Cain-style Inquisitors go kill witches and demons. Now, if that's your cup of tea, that's going to be a great game experience no matter what, and they blew through pretty much their entire stock of the show. Uh, the engine is basically just D20 with dice pools. If you're looking at a really creative engine, maybe you want to go somewhere else. But if you're looking at this specific experience, this is a great game for it. Uh, in other uh, developments of interest to uh, Steve Jackson fans, John Kavalek's uh, co-designed, or maybe in solely designed, game Cineplexity came out at the show, or was available at the show. I think its official debut was at a film festival in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, if you're not from Madison, Wisconsin, you should probably stop laughing. <laughs> um, it's a lovely little stop on the Trans-Siberian Railway. <laughs> but there, there, there was a uh, 
fairly important convention release of the show, of the game at this show. They had a deluxe edition for sale and like that. James Ernest of formerly of Cheap Ass Games uh, came to me and said, "Do you know where this Cineplexity game is? I have to buy a copy." And when James Ernest has to buy a copy of your game, I think that's a pretty good sign. And I heard another couple of people, none of them quite as exalted as James, uh, expressing similar sentiments, and I dutifully sent them over to Out of the Box Games, no relation to the column, uh, <laughs> to, to get their copies. James and I played, and I schooled James like a redheaded stepchild, so that was very satisfying. Um, so that card game had a lot of buzz, and I don't know that they were demoing any more Cineplexity than they were Apples to Apples or any of the other games, but that game built buzz on the basis of I think word of mouth and just being a really fun playable party game. That was another sort of buzz hit as far as I saw. I didn't go ask the out of the box guys if they sold out, but I think they did pretty well. GMT had uh, new reprints of Twilight Struggle that sold out, and I know that because I was going to buy one Sunday afternoon. <laughs> and stymied your one thing that I've noticed, well, from our conversation just now and from watching your various columns over the past couple of months, you've been watching and uh, highlighting the various uh, so-called indie games, uh, so-called not because they aren't actually indie, but because the term indie is, is fundamentally meaningless. Exactly, but it's a semi-useful shorthand for what we're talking about. To paraphrase John Campbell, indie games are games published by people who think they're indie games. <laughs> exactly. How does that relate to Ken Height, um, Game Master or Ken Height, Author? Ken I Game Master is currently running Truth and Justice, which is, by some people's definition, an indie game because it's creator-owned, creator-created. No freelancing is involved in the text, although obviously he hired the art done. So to some definitions, I guess that's not indie now because he hired the artist. Right. Uh, to other definitions, it's indie until he hires someone to write the text, which I think is kind of rough on artists, but whatever. Yeah. So I'm running an indie game by some measures now, but it's a fairly conventional genre because the game is a superhero game and I'm running a pulp game with it and the project I'm writing right now is a licensed adaptation of Call of Cthulhu which is a non-indie game if there ever was one despite the fact that the original designers still own and still produce the game and it is being adapted for Esoterists which is a small market single batch game of ultimate awesomeness that has strange concepts of uh, resolution mechanics and scene authority, but it's not an indie game because it was done by a mainstream designer, Robin Laws, who was hired, <laughs> hired, I say, by an entirely different publisher to produce it. And so, therefore, you know, maybe it's not an indie game either. Maybe I'm just more corporate hackery from the pen of Ken Height. I am going to write a game that I am going to uh, write all by myself and then have Phil Reed uh, and Hal Mangold publish for me uh, under their respective imprints, which will have an indie sensibility, I suppose. I'm uh, currently basing it fairly heavily in concept on some of the better indie games, I hope. It's called Casey Jones is Dead, and it's a game of uh, ghosts and railroads at the turn of the century that will have an indie sensibility, but because I'll be sending it off to other publishers to make and only collecting checks thereafter, maybe it won't be. The message I'm getting is the term indie is meaningless. Well, indie is as useful in games as it is in rock. If you remember when we had indie rock, back when we had rock, um, <laughs> indie rock meant something that wasn't played on the boring radio station. It right. meant stuff from 
labels that people who weren't into indie rock hadn't heard of much. Uh, the notion that sub pop was ever anything but entrepreneurial, that it was anything but someone that signed artists to a label just like Island, just like uh, EMI, just like every other record label in the universe, is kind of ludicrous. But it had a sensibility. It conveyed a feeling. People who were on indie labels knew each other, and they went to each other's concerts, and they supported each other, and they toured relentlessly, and they got lots of fans interested in rock at a time when mainstream rock or corporate rock or AOR, or whatever you want to call it, was pretty much languishing and dead and unimportant. Some of that is happening in games. The guys who are doing these games have their own sensibility. They consider themselves indie. They consider themselves a breed apart. And they act like a breed apart. They play the games really hard. They don't have a core book and supplement model ad eternam. They're rethinking how they do distribution. They're rethinking how they do publishing. They're rethinking how they do rules and concepts and game mastering and everything else. And as a result, they're creating a different audience. Now, is it the audience of Dungeons & Dragons? No, nothing will ever have the audience of Dungeons & Dragons. By that definition, GURPS is an indie game. As a matter of fact, by a lot of definitions, GURPS is an indie game. The designer and publisher still owns the thing, and he's still publishing it. Yeah. Depending on how much I've had to drink and how much I want to start a fight, I like to point out that Champions was an indie game for like three and a half years. <laughs> uh, because the designers published it themselves, and they didn't have a freelancer for about that long. Yeah. I mean, the term means what people want it to mean, like every other thing in the language. And I think that it's a good way to refer to the little games that are doing virtually the only interesting thing in game design right now. And since that seems needlessly harsh, indie games will work as well as anything else. On the Ken Height writing front, um, when we spoke at GTS, you mentioned a rather unusual project combining superheroes and Lovecraft and a whole mess of weirdness. Um, where's that project at? Uh, we brought Hal Mangled on to do layout and graphic design and things like that on it. Uh, we are going to revisit the art question, which has flummoxed us for a little while. Uh, there's a lot of public domain art at the Nidor uh, Comics Archives that uh, is not really usable, but maybe tweakable to be usable, and how may look at that. So we're, we're trying to come around the art problem another way. I had hoped that we'd have it at the show. We're not going to have it at the show, but maybe in another couple of months. I don't want to say Gen Con, but if you show up at Gen Con and it is there, you will be uh, as delighted as I will. <laughs> and uh, just in case uh, our listeners haven't spotted it. It's Adventures in Darkness. Adventures into Darkness. Adventures into Darkness. And it is a Golden Age superhero source book from the alternate history in which H.P. Lovecraft wrote comics instead of dying. See, that right there is, like, the perfect blurb. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I was talking to Shane Hensley of Pinnacle, well, formerly Pinnacle, Great White Games now, about it. And since he's a friend, and I sort of went into the... 20-minute version of that perfect blurb. <laughs> and at the end, I kind of ran down after describing, you know, pagination issues or whatever the hell. And he says, you need to work on your elevator pitch. <laughs> so the elevator pitch is, H.P. Lovecraft writes Golden Age superheroes. And that's, for anybody who knows and loves Lovecraft and Golden Age comics, that's pretty much all they need to hear. One certainly hopes so. <laughs> um, but as far as... Uh, other things, that's that's a project that's in the works, a project that you just wrapped up was your Tour de Lovecraft. 
on your uh, live journal. That's correct. Um, every year I try to do kind of a long-form serial piece uh, to keep people interested, maybe the wrong word, but to keep <laughs> people sort of languidly clicking on to see what I'm doing next. And this one was the tour to Lovecraft, where I went through every one of the 51 Lovecraft stories in the Penguin collections and attempted to offer some sort of analytical insight into them with whatever success you can tell by going to my journal, princeofcairo.livejournal.com. The current plan is to shape those essays up, make them a little less live journally. I'll write an introduction about Lovecraft criticism and a terminal essay tracing some of the threads through Lovecraft that I detected during this tour, and we will be publishing that as a PDF. So Hal is very interested in that, Phil is very interested in that, so we may have that one at Gen Con. We may have two books at Gen Con, no books at Gen Con, one book at Gen Con. Who can say? Who can say it's a crapshoot? It is. Thank you very much, Ken, and that wraps up our second annual Origins interview, and uh, we'll be back uh, next year. Ideally, yes. Uh, Thanks very much, Paul. That gets Origins out of the way. Up next is Gen Con. As soon as I can find Paul and Thomas in the same room at the same time, I will pull the info out of them and bring it to you in episode 11. Until then, keep the questions and comments coming either to Fenordcast at sjgames.com or the Fenordcast section of our forums. Fenordcast is a production of Steve Jackson Games. All our music written and performed by Tom Smith at tomsmithonline.com.